And welcome to the socialworldpodcast.com. Your host is Dave Niven. Today's show is sponsored by David Niven Associates. Welcome to Podcast 27. I'm Dave Niven, and this is the Social World Podcast. And you can listen to us uh, either at the website, socialworldpodcast.com, you can get it through iTunes, and uh, we're also on Twitter at Dave Niven. We're on LinkedIn, and generally we're here to hopefully give you a good episode. Now, today's principal guest is Des Holmes. She's the Director of Research and Practice at Dartington, which is in Devon in England, and uh, it's a very good interview. I commend you to listen to it. But I also wanted to put in another little interview that I did myself on the BBC, on the media show, and... uh, That's just about, uh, if you like, the plethora of documentaries that suddenly have appeared about adoption. And to my mind, a good representation of social workers and a good representation to the public of what social workers do. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, they've opened the door a little bit more now about seeing what frontline social workers do and seeing their capacity and seeing their professionalism And in effect, I think, as I've always said, that the media should be more encouraged to uh, come and look and hear and view the professionalism of social workers on the front line. So that's today's episode, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome. Well, today's guest is Des Holmes, and Des is the Director of Research and Practice and she was previously the assistant director of that. And prior to that, Des was program manager for the Centre for Excellence and Outcomes, the C4EO, and that was responsible for capacity building. And apart from that, she's on a range of uh, uh, Association of Directors of Children's Services policy committees, a number of research advisory boards, And for the past three years, she sat on the judging panel for the Social Worker of the Year Awards. Now, apart from that, her particular interests are youth offending, wider family support. And as I said, and as she said to me just a minute or two ago, the judging panels, which she's done now for about three or four years for Social Worker of the Year, seems to come around so fast that you've just awarded one prize. And as you've virtually got to decide on the next ones immediately almost. Anyway, Des, very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much for having me, David. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so research and practice. Do you want to just say a little bit about what RIP, as we'll call it, does, please? Oh, please don't call it RIP. I'm sure there's undertakers out there who'd uh, (laughs) (laughs) be uh, angling for our website address. Research and practice was set up in 1996. It's part of the Dartington Hall Trust, and we're based in Devon and uh, up in Sheffield as well. Um, We are essentially a network organisation and we've been supporting the children's sector to embed evidence-informed practice now for over 17 years. Um, And I'm happy to talk a little bit about evidence-informed practice, which is different and distinct from evidence-based practice or evidence-based programmes. We have around two-thirds of the local authorities in England and a number of uh, the local authorities in Wales and a small number of the large voluntary sector providers in our network. 
and essentially we help those who work with children and families to access, understand and then apply evidence in their work in order to enable uh, better decision making, safer practice, uh, a base for their innovation um, and greater skills in terms of evaluating the impact of the work they do. It's about doing what works for whom in the right dosage at the right time, which of course with the money running out the way it is has never been more important. You in the past, you worked as a lecturer uh, on, on a social work degree and you've had several years experience of training and workforce development. I mean, now looking back as you were from research and practice uh, platform, if you like, and therefore the contacts you have all across the country, do you want to talk about any of the major changes that you've seen or any of the major initiatives that you've seen or... I mean, anything you think is maybe stalled or whatever, and anything you think is doing well. Well, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so much the stalling, but what I think we have seen very much, certainly since Rip's inception, um, the argument about whether we should be using evidence in our practice with children uh, is is a moot point now. No one's having that discussion. We know we should be. The debate now is about how we can best do that, um, and certainly I think uh, that's quite a significant shift. And what that we should feel as a sector very proud of. In the early days, it, it seems odd to even remember this now, people were still debating whether or not there was a place for research evidence in work with families, which, which seems utterly extraordinary um, mm. in, in, in contemporary debate. I think there's been a number of things that have really, really helped this agenda. Um, I think that whilst some of the challenges associated with the conversion to a degree course for social workers are, are well documented. One of the real benefits is that uh, social work students are now entering their placements and coming into their first year of practice, they're, they're assessed and supported first year, um, with a real appetite for research. There is um, a real appetite and a real skill set there. We're talking about social workers who are coming into the, coming into the trade, so to speak, uh, well able to undertake referencing. They know how to do good academic searches. They recognise the importance of research and they're hugely keen to apply that evidence in their work with children and families. What hampers them, of course, is lack of time, lack of organisational support sometimes and the wider system and culture they can work in. I think uh, also, some of the things that have helped, I mean, the Monroe Review of Child Protection was enormously helpful. I think in that, um, Professor Monroe makes a number of points about the critical importance of research literate practitioners, which to me is um, is so clear uh, that, uh, that we need social workers and, and wider social care practitioners working in that way. Just as we do in health, we would not accept our surgeon to be operating on common sense alone. We should not accept it from our social care workforce. Yeah, right. Sim similarly, the Family Justice review and then, and then the reforms um, place a real, well they highlight the imperative for the social work profession to be using evidence uh, in a sophisticated manner in terms of the family court work and again I think that this to me seems absolutely clear and obvious if social workers are to become the experts that um, the family justice reforms now deem them to be we have to ensure our social workers have access to good quality robust and relevant research and are able to apply that in their work with families mm. I mean put simply if someone has the power to uh, be part of a decision to take your child away from you, the very least we should expect is that they know what they're talking about. Now, Des, you mentioned there, and I found that fascinating in terms of actually the correlation between frontline practice and the amount of time, if you like, that social workers get to do research, which you say is obviously crucial to the performance of social workers and the quality of work that they offer. Um, well... A recent, not, say a recent survey by the British Association of Social Workers, for example, 
showed that only a very small percentage of social workers up and down the country read serious case reviews. And that even alone would kind of make your point for it, or you wouldn't it? Um, I think I'm making a different point, um, although I am aware of that report. I think they said around 27% of social workers read serious mm-hmm. case reviews. Well, frankly, given the length of serious case reviews, the commonality of messages and the burdens on social workers, I'm amazed it's that high. But that's a different point. Um, the uh, point I was making was around the capacity of the social work profession to just read research and think about how it can be applied in their practice, never mind undertaking their own research, as you would expect, for example, healthcare professionals to be doing. Mm. And I think this is, of course, it's always easy to talk about things like caseloads, but for me, it's more than caseloads. It's about the the expectations that we place upon our workforce. So, again, coming back to health, we expect our top surgeons not just to be reading research on, you know, the latest innovations in renal treatments, but to actually be doing that research themselves, to be publishing their own research. We simply don't have that culture in social work and social care. And I think that's a real shame because there are some extraordinarily bright leaders in the field who are working in a context where research and and other forms of evidence are almost seen as a luxury, a bolt-on, something you do when there's a bit of time around the day job. But actually, knowing what you're doing and doing the thing that is most effective is the day job. So I think that um, we we need to ensure that the social work profession and uh, the wider children's sector are really supported to embed the use of evidence in their work. It cannot be a luxury. It cannot be a bolt-on. It fundamentally is the day job. To be doing the right things by these children and families and to be doing what is known to be most effective, there's a moral imperative for that, but there's also a financial imperative. You know, when we, when we the British public, find out that let's say the armed forces are using equipment which evidence shows is not fit for purpose, um, they were up in arms about it. We should feel exactly the same by ineffective uh, interventions for children and families. Okay. Uh, I, I totally, actually, I totally agree with you. It's just a huge cultural change is needed, isn't it, in terms of the actual daily practice of social workers? It is. Managers. It absolutely is. And I think it's we have a number of things um, which are pulling in this direction, which which can work to work to support the evidence for practice agenda. Uh, the first of those is the the huge amount of work being done to strengthen and promote the social work profession. So, um, you know, the the advent of the uh, College of Social Work, for example, who are playing, I think, a fantastic role in in championing social work and and, uh, in developing CPD around that. I think, uh, obviously, Isabel Trialer being appointed as Chief Social Worker. There is a real drive now to ensure the profession itself is as professional as it can be. And, of course, I would argue that the use of evidence is key to that. There's also, I think, and... um, it's not like me to find myself looking for the positive in austerity, but I do think that the pressures on the sector to um, achieve savings, really, really significant, dare I say it, quite painful in places, savings, um, that does provide an impetus uh, which which endorses the use of evidence. You know, if you put simply, if you have um, far less resource, far fewer staff, you're working in an increasingly complex policy arena, you absolutely need to know that your workforce are doing the things that are most effective with the scant resource you have. Well, that's what research helps us to do.
I think I agree with you and I understand your point. I think that obviously you would also agree though that the paradox of that is that the fewer staff you have, the less time that they perceive they have, the more likely they are to not do the research as opposed to rush out to the latest fire to try and fight it. Um, and that, yes, absolutely. that's the problem, isn't it? It certainly is part of the problem. That said, I see examples all the time. I mean, we're very privileged at research and practice that we, we work with a large number of local authorities um, and see the commitment of the sector every single day. And I have seen many examples of local authorities and voluntary sector organisations who, despite the financial pressures, despite the, the other pressures on them, they are investing in their workforce, they are uh, determined to ensure that good quality CPD is part of what they do. So, for example, whether that is um, ensuring that their staff have access to research or ensuring that their policies and procedures are research based or whether that is taking part in action research themselves. We're seeing um, the sector do this up and down the country and I think that's absolutely to be applauded. Often training um, and I, or learning and development in the broader sense is one of the first things to be cut when, when money gets tight and uh, I think that is one of the most perilous things you can cut of course because when when times are hard not only do you have a workforce who are under increased pressure as you say but you also of course have uh, uh, the communities themselves face great pressure so in, in many ways we're seeing need increase whilst services to address that need are reduced so again the role of evidence and the imperative to have a highly skilled well supervised knowledgeable and confident workforce has never been greater Right. I, I take your point and, and I'm really encouraged to hear that um, several of the people that you work with, the, the employers, the authorities, etc., are are behaving, if you like, in a way that you think is uh, encouraging in terms of actual research and in terms of actually putting together the, if you like, the landscape that you would prefer in terms of how social work is actually um, delivered. But do you also get frustrated, I imagine, sometimes that there's not very many of the employers are doing or man managing to do that when you see and you're almost shouting from the sidelines just how crucial that is? Um, I'm not sure that I'd see it as that. The first thing to say, this is not about um, creating a world that I would prefer. This is about what we know to be right for children and families and delivering interventions and approaches that are shown to be more effective is clearly the right thing to do in the same way that prescribing medication that works is the right thing to do. Um, so it's not a, a matter of personal preference and I do find myself getting frustrated not by the employers themselves but by the barriers they as employers face. So um, as I say, we've got two thirds, around two thirds of the local authorities in England are part of our network. They've made that commitment. Um, I see um, some great examples time and time again uh, of organisations taking part in research, ensuring their staff can access research. However, we should remember that uh, our colleagues are working in a wider system where the use of evidence is sometimes um, well, it's certainly not demanded of them and in, arguably it's not even required of them in places. And again, if you compare that to health, where there is absolutely an expectation that people will be using research and conducting their own research, I, I really don't see that social care is any different. It certainly isn't the case, um, as you might argue, that the side effects of poor social work are any less severe than the side effects of the wrong medication. Um, 
you know, it, it is still a matter of life and death in some instances. And for me, I think it's about respecting the profession. We should have really high expectations of our social workers, of our affiliated support services, of the sector itself. But with those expectations, there has to be wider systemic support. So, for example, I would, um, I hope within my lifetime, we will see an inspection and regulation uh, regime which absolutely recognises and rewards the use of evidence in practice with children and families. I am always encouraged on those occasions where I can see central government policy is actively based on research and I am disheartened when I see examples of policy and legislation coming through which are very disconnected from what research tells us. Mm. Um, but it's also about public attitudes, you know, when I talk to people about what I do, it's a deeply unglamorous um, <laughs> sort of notion. When you say you run a charity and everyone thinks you must be a wonderful person and then you say, oh yes, it's in evidence-informed practice and they go a little bit blank-eyed, I have to say, it's, it's uh, not terribly exciting at dinner parties. But actually, it is everybody's business. We all care, most of us care, about whether the most vulnerable people in society are getting what they should be getting. And even if you don't give a damn about children and families, you probably do care about your taxes. So the evidence-informed practice, doing what works, is is a core issue, I think, for general society. Yeah. And I also think that... Um, we have the capacity to care about this sort of stuff. So when people find out, for example, that their local PCT, as was, um, weren't prescribing breast cancer treatment, which NICE had deemed to be very effective, people were protesting on their streets. They were writing to their local papers. They were agitating, agitated and agitating. Um, and arguably perhaps they should be, but we should feel no different about the support provided to children and families. I would be delighted um, I, you know, I, I have a dream, David, that one day we'll see a mother in court receiving some form of parenting order and she will say, yes, Your Honour, I'm more than happy to attend this parenting course. Can you, as an agent of the state, assure me that it's evidence-based and can you tell me about its efficacy as an intervention? Right. We have the right to be doing what works. <laughs> I'd love to see that too. I think, um, and, and I do take your point about the charity because having run a social policy charity myself for several years, I, I do understand um, where you're coming from on that one. Let, 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 that's, look, let me move on just slightly and, and if you like slightly over and talk about the image of social work all right, in, in the public mind and public perception and in the media because you can't avoid that. Mm -hmm. um, now have you seen it change? Have you seen it change fast? Uh, is it changing or is it relatively static? I mean, what, what would your take on this be at the moment in terms of the public perception of social work, especially childcare? Well, I, it's difficult for me having worked in this field um, because I no longer have the lay person's perspective, of course. Uh, and um, I don't believe it is wholly static. No, I, I do recognise that the argument the old adage of social work that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't um, does remain in many instances. However, I think there's been some enormously positive moves in recent years. I talked about um, the College of Social Work and of course before that the, the Reform Board, before that the Task Force, I think the advent of the Chief Social Worker, I think um, that the, the new uh, Principal Social Worker roles, so on and so forth, I think a huge amount is being done to I don't want to say to professionalise social work, uh, because that would indicate that it wasn't a profession to begin with, but to strengthen the profession of social work. And I think that's that's very, very helpful and to be wholeheartedly welcomed. Um, 
I do think that there's a great deal that needs to be done around social work education. I was, I read, as I'm sure you did, I read with interest the um, two reviews for social work education. Mm. Uh, and the, some of the recommendations coming out of that, I think, uh, are very interesting. I think what's key about those two reviews is that we really need the sector to grab hold of this agenda, to welcome the very timely debate that those um, those two reviews uh, invite, but to ensure that the changes that may be deemed necessary are undertaken with the sector and alongside the sector and not um, undertaken in some centralised uh chamber. Okay, let me ask you this then, because I, I was reading the other day and, and, and I did a blog on it. Um, Julian Legrand at the um, London School of Economics was re writing recently in a, a Guardian online piece and he's very strongly recommending the privatization of child protection services. Yes, it's a very... um. Got a view on that? Ah, uh, <clears throat> I think we should always proceed with caution when something um, is untested. I mean, I would say that because I'm all about evidence. I can certainly see that the kind of work that Julian Legrand's been involved in, so that the review of Birmingham and his his work elsewhere, um, has has given him uh, a very clear insight to some of the enormous challenges faced um, in some parts of the sector. And And I do, in principle, welcome bold ideas. Um, however, I'm not aware of many, indeed if any, uh, studies which clearly demonstrate that privatisation increases the quality of a service. Now I say this as someone who travels by train about 17 times a week, so perhaps I have a particular agenda around what privatisation can do to the quality of a service. but. I would be wanting to be very cautious around the privatisation of social care and social work. And I think this is partly, as I say, because to do something which is wholly untested when we're talking about people's lives, public money and other people's children, um, it seems to me to be not, not one to gamble with and we should proceed with caution in a very measured manner. And I, you know, I'm sure from what I know of Julian Legrand, he is a hugely intelligent man and, and would be wanting to, to proceed in that way too. I also think there's something about accountability here. And when you are spending public money and when you are dealing in issues of public safety and uh, of you know, future generations who are you know, an asset, this part of this nation's asset bank, if you like, um, I think that we do have uh, a duty to ensure that the services they receive are accountable and I think that the strongest or certainly the most established system of accountability we have in this country is that of democratic accountability. So where uh, services or models are privatised it may well be that that increases quality which is to be welcomed. We do then need to assure ourselves that the appropriate models of accountability are in place if we're to ensure we're doing right by society's most vulnerable. Okay. Thanks for that. Well, look, let me move on to just one thing, and that's a particular topic that I know is of great interest to you and that you, you've got a certain view about how we could take it forward, and that's talking about harmful sexual behaviour. Um, that's right. In this country. I mean, um, well, why don't you just talk away on that, because you did mention it to me before, and I'd very much like to hear your views on, on this. Thank you, David. Yes, it's um, well, we've been working on this for around a year now in research and practice, and it's the issue of children and young people who present with harmful sexual behaviour. 
Um, it's a very contested area of policy and practice. Um, and the, the largely hidden nature of child sexual abuse does make recognition very difficult. And the stigma and shame associated with that victimisation can lead to underreporting. So it's very difficult to accurately measure the true scale of the problem. However, um, currently, certainly some studies from 2006 seem to demonstrate that a third of all sexual abuse that comes to the attention of the professional system is perpetrated by children and young people themselves. Now, since the 1990s, there's been a range of specialist assessment and intervention services, but they have developed rather piecemeal and there are real gaps in our services. Um, the knowledge and awareness amongst professionals is also highly variable. And whilst there are pockets of really excellent local practice, um, and there's a, a number that we, we've been detailing in, in a research review we're about to publish in a few weeks' time, um, we do need a much more coordinated response. We are, um, and I say this, uh, without wishing to um, ascribe blame, but we are unfortunately looking at a situation where despite the scale of this problem, uh, the sector is working rather blind. We have no national level overarching strategy or, or service delivery framework. Um, it's unfortunately an issue that falls between policy arenas and professional silos. Um, and you know, you might be aware that the reference to young people who sexually abuse children and young people was removed altogether from the Working Together guidance um, that came out in 2013. So we are asking our professionals to work in an extremely complex, very difficult, very emotionally challenging area where the research evidence can be quite hard to access and there is a lack of national leadership. Um, but when you think about this issue of, of children and young people who may be harming others through their sexual behaviour, that's both a child protection issue, it affects wider family support services, it's often a, a youth justice issue, it affects crime and disorder agendas, um, certainly uh, mental health services and, and other health services are drawn into this. It's everybody's problem, but unfortunately until now it's been no one's priority. Mm. Now, that is starting to change and um, we're, we're very pleased that... Um, our research review is coming out at a time when uh, there is a bit of space opening up to have this discussion. But um, I do think that we need to recognise that part of why we find this so difficult to deal with is to do with, in my view at least, um, the issues we have around societal conceptualisation. We find it hard sometimes as a, as a society, if not as individuals, to recognise that young people and children can be both at risk and present a risk. So in many cases, children and young people occupy these dual identities as perpetrator abuse and victim of harm. And there's significant overlap between issues associated with sexual abuse by, by young people and broader fields of child sexual exploitation, domestic violence, neglect and mental health. Um, so we do need to unpick some of our societal conceptualisation challenges, shall we say, if we're going to, to make headway here. Right. I am um, Look forward to that research coming out in a few weeks, you say. Yes, it'll be published in around three weeks, I think. I'm more than happy if people want to um, request copies and they can uh, buy them from our website. Um, people can contact me through you if that's helpful. Um, the other thing to note... get you to read is, out all your contact details in a minute at the end of the interview. Oh, super. The other thing to note, and, and I'm very, very pleased to be involved in this, is that there is um, some work just starting now to try and pilot a national framework around harmful sexual behaviour. Um, where the sector, particularly led by the voluntary sector, the sector is going to try and take hold of this agenda themselves and develop a national practice and service framework, which I think is hugely helpful and hopefully will inspire national policy leaders to uh, to engage in this important issue. 
Okay, a final point, Des, and that is that um, you'll be aware that this podcast um, is, is downloaded in about 50-odd countries, and therefore we have a lot of listeners who've got different experiences of social work and different ideas about social work, but who are, are, are very interested in listening to the UK's perspective on this. Now, finally, what would be the kind of message you would like to give out to the wider social work community, you know, because this is your opportunity, this is a platform for this, and finally, at the end of it, just after a moment or two, tell us your contact details. I think that social work in this country as a profession is at a very exciting point uh, in its journey. I think that there is increasing appetite for the use of evidence, which shows profession up um, and gives it uh, a degree of confidence which it, it much needs. I think there's some really excellent work going on to strengthen that. I think there are tensions. I think not least the tension that exists between the need to protect um, but equally the need to work in partnership. Social work is, is not just child protection although sometimes we can um, to read some elements of the press, you'd think that all social workers did was rescue children from feckless parents. We must resist that mythology. Social work is about enabling people to be active agents in their own lives and empowering them to make the changes needed, part of which is within child protection. And I think that's a really important value base to hold on to. I think I would also want to recognise the tremendous tenacity and toil and talent within the sector. It is... Um, very easy when reading some sections of the press to only focus on the mistakes that are made, the challenges that are faced and the um, very unfortunate uh, heart-rending incidents that can happen. Um, we do need some real courage here. It is unfortunate that we are operating in a context which means no politician will ever stand up after a, uh, a tragedy and say, I'm afraid I can't promise this won't happen again. Um, we know that it will happen again. All we can promise is that we won't make the same mistakes and that we will reduce the chances of it happening again. Now, unfortunately, um, for various reasons, that is not a politically viable message. So we are asking the sector to essentially um, try to tame what is fundamentally a very wicked issue, to coin a phrase from virtual staff of college. And I think that the public do need to be a bit more attuned to that. Um, we we are right to be shocked and horrified by the tragedies that um, occur. However, it is not always the case that this is the fault of services, um, and it's not always the case that it is avoidable. Thanks. So we Sorry, yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, but please, before we go, I very much like you to say your contacts for research and practice. If people wanted to look at what research and practice does, or find any of the work that you're doing or look for initiatives coming from it. How do you get and how do they look for you and how do they get in touch with you? Well, our website address is www.rip.org.uk. If, if people would like to contact us to um, inquire about membership or accessing our resources, um, they can either go through the website or they can email ask at rip .org.uk um, and we'd be very keen to hear from people particularly if people want to join us on Twitter we are at researchip is our Twitter handle um, and we'd really welcome to continue the debate about any of the things I've talked about today or indeed whatever people are interested in discussing with us Des, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest on the programme, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much David mm -hmm.
Well, that was a fascinating interview with Des, and again, many thanks to her. So now let's have a little bit of a listen to uh, the media show on the BBC and uh, the discussion about adoption and the discussion about, uh, if you like, the wider exposure of social work in the media. Uh, David Niven, you were a social worker and you've been involved, you were involved for a long time in the British Association of Social Workers. Where does the traditional reluctance, if I might call it that, of social workers and some local authorities to, to deal with the media on these issues come from? Well, I think it's um, traditionally been in their blood, in their professional blood, that um, the idea of confidentiality is right at the top of the list. And so when you get anything, and in this case the media, who want to expose some of the issues and actually show the practice that goes on behind what was before closed doors, I think people um, obviously get very nervous. However... Um, I'm one of the people, and I think the British Association of Social Workers also would agree that there is plenty more opportunity to open that door. And um, not only, um, I hope, Claire's series, which is starting tomorrow, isn't it? And, and Brian's series from True Vision actually has shown that responsible um, documentary making on this subject is possible and that the social workers have been represented in, in a good way. And it's I think the fear everybody had was that this was going to be entertainment and not education. And at the end of the day, it sounds very much like it, it was um, the the latter. I mean, do, do you think it's... Is it, un, is it unambiguously positive? I mean, I wonder if there aren't long-term consequences for the children, for example. Yes. I, mean, a, well, I, I mean, a permanent yeah. record is being made of a difficult time in their lives at a point when they might be very young, they may not be fully able to give informed consent. And, and even if it produces a... a a good outcome in inverted commas for them in other words they get the, an adoption occurs may, maybe because and that's what people see the fact is that you know the record of what happened to them is on the it's there forever hmm. and forever whatever I, they choose to say about themselves it's always there i think that is a, a, an absolute caveat on this situation and we're just going to have to wait and see what happens and um i think somebody mentioned earlier that Probably the majority of people approached preferred not to get involved in this situation and it was a minority that actually allowed themselves to be and after a lot of negotiation. However, from my mind, and if you think about child protection cases as well and things that um, social workers have been involved with in the media before, to my mind, the, the, the more that's demystified, the better. Because if people don't know what social workers do and only believe in the mythology then at the end of the day, tomorrow morning, when there's a new case of somebody uh, or somebody has to get involved with a social worker and they're standing there on the doorstep, there's that just that little bit more opportunity to trust them. And that's what social work's built on, is trust. And if they, that helps, and if good programmes help that, showing frontline social workers, not just managers talking about social work, but frontline social workers, like many other professions actually are shown on television, then that, um, that mythology can get, actually, can, can get broken apart, and that's very helpful. Claire, are you, you talked about the difficulties of making a series like this for ITV. Now, it's prime time, it's nine o'clock. Roger's mentioned that these programmes you know, have a habit, if you're lucky, of rating reasonably well. Uh, have you felt pressure to uh, make it as entertaining as you possibly can? No, not at all. Um, in fact, I, I, that's what I thought would happen. In fact, the opposite has happened. Um, Wall to Wall, the company that, that's making this um, for ITV, have a track record in making Who Do You Think You Are and, and Long Lost Family, which are inherently more entertaining. But in fact, we were given a lot of support to just go out there and try and 
tell it as it really is. Um, and it's been really fascinating how much we have learnt, how much I have learnt about adoption. And just to go back on what David said about the effect possibly on the children, the thing about adoption today is how upfront everybody is with the children right from day one. Nothing is hidden. All They, they have life story work. They have DVDs to show where they mm. came from. And so actually in some ways it can be a very positive experience uh, what we're doing. And, and talking about pressures of ITV, no. I mean, the, the only pressure is is what you put on yourself to try and make sure that you people keep watching. Okay. You don't want to spend all this time and then people go off and make their tea. All right, Roger, you've been at this game for longer than I think possibly the rest of us put together. Um, do you see any downside in greater openness in these sort of situations? Well, I always hope that when people are being invited into very personal and private situations, that they respect the privacy and the sensitivity of it uh, while trying to do the job of telling the story. And the thing that I worry about is that if people uh, who aren't as sensitive as Claire and her team and Brian and his team and also Sasha Mertzoff's Protecting Our Children, wonderful series on BBC Two, if they they don't have the the sensitivity gene, if they're ethically colourblind, as happens in some of the reality shows, then that's a risk. But I think as long as it's done as responsibly as as it has been so far, I think it's good and it'll get more kids adopted. Okay, Roger Grafe, Claire Lewis, David Niven, uh, many thanks indeed. Well, thank you all very much indeed for listening. I hope you enjoyed this programme. Remember, iTunes, website, and remember too, um, SpeakPipe, that one-click service beside the blog or the podcast that you can leave Uh, a verbal message. You can leave a message about the podcast or about what you'd like to see on future podcasts, who you might like to see on it, or just just a comment in general about some of the subjects that you've heard. And all things being equal, I'll include it in the next podcast. Also, please try and leave reviews on iTunes. It really helps us kind of become prominent as the number one social social work podcast uh, in the UK. So at the end of the day, Thanks again. Look forward to Podcast 28 next week. I'll try and make it as good as I can for you, and uh, I appreciate that uh, you're listening. Thank you. <laughs>